Welcome to a special edition of 21st Century Boys. This is going to be another one of the hobby episodes where we talk to another collector. And today, straight from the Puck Junk podcast, is Sal Barry. How's it going, Sal? Um, well, thank you very much for having me on your show today. So the show I listen to is about hockey cards. You and your partner talk about hockey cards and your collections. So why don't you tell me a little bit uh, that's been going on with the show recently? So the Puck Junk Hockey Podcast, uh, we started that in 2015, and uh, we basically talk about hockey cards, hockey collectibles, what's going on in the NHL, what's going on in the world of hockey, and anything uh, interesting that's collectibles related, maybe not even um, necessarily with hockey cards, but any just any sports cards if it's like a bigger story. Like, of course, when Fanatics uh, bought up everybody or when Target stopped selling sports cards for a while, we had to talk about that, even though it wasn't necessarily hockey related, it was industry related. So lately we've just been kind of focusing on well, trying to focus on new cards, but there hasn't been a lot of new cards coming out. So some of our shows have just been like, hey, let's talk about the latest Chicago Blackhawks scandal, because I'm in Chicago, so I want to talk about that. So uh, sure. that's uh, that's kind of like what our show's been a little less about cards, because there hasn't been as much cards with all the delays and such. Now, I know you're a Blackhawks fan, so this is one thing. I I'm not giving myself any credit for this but I just find it of interest. My last two children, when we uh, moved to Iowa, were born, and guess what, two years? Ten and 13. Yes, they were. <laughs> so I just always thought that was really cool. I had I had kids born during two Stanley Cup years. So we're not quite in Chicago, but for the most part, we watch Chicago sports these days. So you named them Kane and Taves? <laughs> Right? No, um, Jonah and uh, Henry, but I, my wife's not a hockey fan at all. But I, I just really remember thinking, like, man, I need to have more kids so that we can have more more trophies come to Chicago. Right, right, yeah. Appreciate, I, appreciate all the help we can get. <laughs> all right, so what we're going to talk about today, though, is not hockey. Um, which is probably good because people are, for the most part, tuning in to hear about either weird old comics or what my son and I cover, which is kind of just across the board comics from manga to new stuff to old stuff to weird stuff. What we're going to talk about today is the 90s, and specifically we're going to look a little bit at image comics. I might have some other questions just because it's always fun when I get to talk to somebody who's had the experience you've had. So why are you qualified to talk about image comics? So, <laughs> great question. I worked for a comic book store from fall of 91 to spring of 94. And that was right when Image came out and Image exploded and comic book collecting got very popular because you had uh, all those artists leave Marvel and form their own company, Image. And you had like the death of Superman. You had other independent publishers popping up left and right, like almost overnight. Uh, you had all that craziness with like Batman and Captain America where they're getting killed off or they're getting hurt or replaced or whatever. And uh, at that time, I started working in the comic store uh, right around the time Image was starting to hit the shelves. And I was kind of new to comics. Like, um, 
I had collected as a kid, like G.I. Joe comics, Transformers, Star Wars. Uh, I got into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for obvious reasons, because, you know, I was huge in, like, the late 80s, but I actually liked the black and white uh, turtle comics. You know, I, I, I was no stranger to comic book stores in the 80s. I mean, I'd go once a week. But then I want to say by, like, the late 80s, early 90s, I kind of stopped because I was getting a little older and I wasn't so much into it. And then I started working at a comic book store. It was a Cardin comic shop. Okay. And my mom knew the owner, so there was already a little bit of a, um, like, a connection there. Um, and so when he opened another location that was, like, three blocks from my grandma's house, I said, hey, you know, my grandma lives like three blocks away from here, and I visit her house like every weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I just go to my grandma's house. I've been going to my grandma's house on the weekend since I was like five. I'm like, so I'm always, I'm I'm in this neighborhood if you want like, you know, an extra hand um, on the weekends when it gets busier. And so that was my first job was working in a comic and card shop. And I was probably more interested in, in the cards because that's what I was into collecting hockey cards. But you know, you're putting these books on the shelves every week and you go, Oh, these look cool. This looks cool. And then you hear people asking, Oh, what do you know about spawn? What do you know about young blood? And you're like, well, I don't really know anything about this, but maybe I should. So then I started reading them. So I think that's what makes me qualified was not only was I working at that time, but I was just trying to absorb everything that I could. Yeah. That's one thing I was going to ask you is, you know, you go into a comic store right now and we have the Quad Cities is really strange because we're not that big, but we have got we've had a couple closed down um, since honestly, sadly, COVID. We had a fellow who passed away and one just went out of business. But like in Rock Island, I can think of three stores in Davenport. There's at least two. And in Bettendorf, there's one. So in these, you know, four cities that make up the Quad Cities, that's a lot of comic book stores. Um, for the most part, they don't have cards at all. Uh, we do have the one that is half sports cards, half comics. Um, but in general, the layout tends to be, you know, Magic the Gathering and comics and gaming supplies. So what kind of things did it, your store sell at that point in time? Was it mostly just cards and comics, just pretty straightforward? It was mostly comics and some cards because okay. card collecting got so popular in the late 80s that most comic shops just kind of jumped on it because it was another uh, stream of revenue for them. Sure. Um, even with, like, uh, you consider, like, you started getting companies like ProSet, and upper deck to a lesser extent and uh, even tops. I mean, it's basically like if you had a candy, if, if you bought candy, then you had an in with tops because tops was, even though people were buying their baseball cards because they were baseball cards, they still considered themselves a candy company in the late eighties, early nineties. So if you, if you carried candy, it was pretty easy for you to get tops cards. And then later on cards like pro set, because they had a lot of the same distribution as like, um, tobacco companies and such. So it was pretty easy for comic shops to say, oh, yeah, we want to carry baseball cards. We want to carry football cards. So a lot of the times they tended to just carry the new stuff because it was easy and available and not so much of the older stuff because people would have to bring that in to sell to them. And they were more likely to bring their comic books to a comic book store to, to sell. 
And I think that's happened a lot with a lot with comic stores too. Is um the back issues? I think in the general mom and pop comic shop, if that's a thing, you know. But the general local comic store, I think, it sticks to new books, and the back issue stuff is kind of a thing of the past. You know, they might have a handful that are available, or they have stuff they haven't sold. But I know, for example, when we go to uh, Chicago, one of the places we like to go is. I'm going to forget the name of where it's at, but uh, it's all yeah comics. It's run by the, the guys who uh, created uh, the tiny Titans and, and some of the more kid friendly books. And mm-hmm. uh, that's really their focus is because I asked them one time, well, where do you keep like old ultraverse? And they're like, we don't, we don't have that stuff out. You know, we do new, we do, we do new books only. <laughs> so I'm like, oh man, I want to dig through for some old, uh, primes or something. But, uh, I think that's a thing now too, is where they really focus on the new product and not so much the old. So, Funny that I, you should mention prime because I, I have the first issue signed by the uh, author, Len Straczewski. Nice. Do you still have he, it? I do. So, um, I, Went to Columbia College in the late 90s, and Len worked for the journalism department and maybe the English department, too. But he worked there, and it was funny because I was I was involved in some student club, and, um, like, he was, like, a speaker, like, maybe as a favor to the other teacher. He came, and he talked about, like, writing, and, like, I'm writing, I'm raising my hand, and I'm, like, wait, you're the guy who wrote Prime. And he's like, yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, okay, cool. And then, like, he'll talk, he'll talk, and he asks, and then, like, I raise my hand. He's like, yeah, what's your question? I'm like, so what was going to happen in Prime? And I kept asking all these, like, comic book questions because, like, I'm like, no, you don't understand. I That was the only uh, Ultraverse book that I stuck with, and now I'm talking to the author of this book, you know, four years later after it was last published or three years later. And, you know, he laughed about how, oh yeah, well, Marvel bought us, bought uh, Malibu and then they didn't pay us. And he talked about, I mean, jokingly, he wasn't like bitter, like Marvel owes me money, but he was like, yeah, Marvel still owes me money. And they, they didn't pay any of us when they, they bought us and blah, blah, blah. But it was just funny to like connect with this author and be like, no, wait, dude, you're, you're that guy who wrote that book. So did you bring your uh, issue to him and ask for him to sign it there? Well, no. You know what it was was years later, um, I ended up becoming a teacher at Columbia College. Okay. And he was still there, and I was still there. So we'd run into each other every now and then. But then I remember they did like a uh, – um, they did some sort of like retrospective of his work – in like comics and they had like these giant like blow ups of like the issues or like any like maybe like a panel that had like really compelling dialogue or whatever that sure. was just kind of like up on display and I brought like comics to get signed then but then he also had some to get signed cuz you know I'm sure some of them like didn't sell and they just said well we can't pay you but here <laughs> have have a crate of 250 of your books or whatever well, that's awesome. So, yeah, I, funnily enough, I don't have a cool story to go with it, but I, I actually have a signed issue of that one as well that I pulled out of a dollar bin. Oh, I don't know. It's one of those things. Anything pre-2020 seems to blend together, but somewhere between 2013 and 2019, I pulled it out of a dollar bin. But mm-hmm. 
That's very good stuff. That was always my favorite of the Ultraverse characters, at least at the time when they were coming out. But let's focus on Image first, and then maybe we can do some side questions on some of the other publishers, because that that does interest me as well. Because I think Image was super influential in their success. They're, you know, superheroes are selling gangbusters, and they don't have to be Marvel or DC. It can be a hero that nobody's ever heard of, you know. 1991, Youngblood drops. Are you at the store when that first comes out? I don't think so, honestly, okay. because uh, New Book Day was always Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And, like, my first six months, I only worked, like, Fridays and Saturdays. And then that summer, so, like, summer of 92, that was when I I went from, like, maybe working four hours on Friday, four hours on Saturday or, you know, maybe eight hours on Saturday. Then, like, when that summer rolled around, my boss said to me, he's like, are you a morning person? And I said, I could be. And right. he hands me a key to the store, and he says, go across the street to the mall and make yourself a copy of this key. He's, I'm going to have you open the store every day. So okay. that summer, I was working every, like, Monday through Saturday, 10 to 3. But then more often than not, like, um, the person who was supposed to come in and replace me in the evening wouldn't come in for reasons I won't get into. But uh, so a lot of times, you know, I'm like 17 years old. And, you know, when you're 17, you're wired on caffeine and sugar. Actually, take that back. That was before I really got into coffee. But you're wired and you're like 17 years old. And I'm like, oh, I'm working in a comic book store. And, oh, sure. You want me to work till close? Yeah, no problem. This is awesome. Right. So um, I wasn't around when Youngblood came out, but I, I, I wasn't working in the store. But what was funny is I remember this is me knowing nothing, like being totally ignorant about superhero comic books. Like I knew who Captain America was and Spider-Man, of course, you know, those guys. Right. But um, I remember some kid came up to me and he said, did Youngblood number one come out? And I said, I turned, I said, I don't know, let me ask. And then I asked my boss and he said, no, we don't know when that's coming out. And then the kid said, oh, OK. And then he left. And I had I had never heard of this book before, and the only thing that I knew that was Youngblood, me being a hockey fan, like was the movie <laughs> was the movie Youngblood starring Rob Lowe, right, and Patrick Swayze and Keanu Reeves. And so I said to my the, the dumbest question in the world, I said they're making a comic book based on that hockey movie from like a couple years ago, and my boss just kind of chuckled. He said, No, 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 it's this. It's this comic book by Rob Liefeld, and he said, uh, did I say that right? Is it Liefeld or Liefeld? Yeah, it's Liefeld. Yeah. Liefeld, that's what I thought. Yeah. He's like, um, and it's been delayed because, actually this is something he said to a customer, he said the book has been delayed because he had to redraw the first issue because Marvel felt that his character designs were too close to, well, probably X-Force. Okay. Yeah, that would, that would make sense. Yeah, that's the book he left. Yep. And you know what was what was interesting about that time was if you remember around then there were these like Spike Lee Levi commercials where he'd right. like talk to people and there was one where he talked to Rob Liefeld and he's like, You you created X Force. He's like, Yeah, I created X Force, right? And he's like, Is your fly button? Yeah, Spike, my fly is button, right? And like so it's like a <laughs> A jeans commercial, but there's like these like giant like comic book illustrations on the wall and stuff. So I mean, Liefeld had I don't want to say a celebrity status, definitely among like the comic 
fans, you know, it was a yeah. I, I would definitely say he, at that point he was the golden child artist. The only one who might have been close would have been probably the people that left with him, either Jim Lee or maybe Todd McFarlane, because both of them with the X Men and and Spider Man were absolutely yeah. huge. Yeah. So um, so anyway, so yeah, so the next one I kind of thought, oh okay, well. You know, there's this book called Young Blood, and people are asking about it, right? And right. and then around the same time too, I remember like X Force number one came out, and they were like polybagged with like the different cards, and you know, people were losing their minds over, oh, this one's polybagged with the Deadpool card, and this was before Deadpool became the Deadpool that we knew. You know what I mean? It was right. just like, oh, Deadpool, he's this kind of cool looking mercenary character or like, oh, this one's polybagged with like a card of cable or whatever. And people were paying like, you know, 10 or $20 over cover price because it had a certain card with it. So, I mean, it was really like around that time where like it just got nuts. And then uh you had this anticipation for these image books that were delayed. And then when they finally came out, they sold like crazy. So, what did delays do to the store? I mean, do you remember from a business side what a kind of effect that would have? Yeah, well, you get people who are interested in a book, and, you know, like a comic book is like a podcast. You have to do it regularly, or people move on to something else, right? Right. So you had people read issue one, and then they want issue two, and it never comes out. Or it takes, you know, six months to come out, and by then – they don't care anymore or uh, they don't want it um, anymore. Um, I know that like um, sometimes we would like order 500 copies of the first issue. Okay. And then the second issue would get solicited. It would never come out. We'd eventually like maybe cut back some of our orders and then, um, you know, either like, Issue two would come out and would just sit on the shelf because nobody wanted it. But that wasn't really the case so much with most of the image books. Like either, um, at least as far as the two stores that I worked in, because my boss had two shops at the time, we either didn't get enough of the second issue or there just wasn't any demand for it. I mean, it, it varied from book to book. I mean, like Spawn was like pretty consistent. So that was a consistent seller. In sure. fact, if anything... I'll tell you this story because I thought this was this was kind of like good foresight. My boss was very hit or miss with the books that he'd order. Like if you were an independent comic publisher and you knew him, he would order like 500 copies of your book because he'd want you to succeed and he'd like you. But then he'd be stuck with 498 copies of the <laughs> book and then they'd end up being like giveaways or like, trick-or-treat things or whatever. And, I mean, I'm not going to name the book. I don't even think I can remember the book's name. But uh, we used to joke about this book. Like, we'd say, hey, would you get me a soda? I'll give you a copy of this book if you get me a soda <laughs> or whatever. Or, like, I remember one time, like, me and, like, another employee, we were bored, so we started playing baseball with this one book where we'd, like, throw it up in the air and then try to hit it with a bat. And this, nice. was, like a, this was, like, a comic book that somebody could buy. But – when you have like 500 copies of it and it's like this black and white comic that no one's heard of. That's what I was be. just going to ask you. I was going to ask you, was it a black and white from the, like the 86, 87 boom? No, no, no. This would have been the early nineties. Oh, okay. But, um, but anyway, but you know, but that's the other thing too, is that like 
our shop actually we had a lot we had a whole section of just black and white comics. Okay. Which people would come to us just for that because again, my boss would believe in like if it's a comic, I should buy it. Like he said I always buy one copy of everything, at least one copy of everything. Because if it's if it's published, it it should be bought. You know, he just it was just the numbers that he always had troubles with. Right. So he bought like seven hundred copies of Spawn number one. And we just thought, what the heck is this guy doing, right? That's crazy. Well, he bought some for another dealer who I guess couldn't get get him through his distributor. I, I'm not sure what the story was there, but he bought them from another dealer. That other dealer never paid him for them. So he ended up having 700 copies of Spawn Number 1. And I thought, well, this looks kind of like a cool book, and people are talking about it. So I remember, like, buying Issue 1 and Issue 2 and, like, reading them in a night and thinking, wow, this is really great. Like, this is such an exciting book. Like, I became a fan after reading the first two issues. Really, the first issue was Spawn. But right. we had all these unsold copies. So I put, a, I put a stack on the counter, and when people were checking out, I'd ask them if they'd want to buy a copy of Spawn 1, and I said, I'm, I'm going to make you a guarantee. I said, buy this book. If you don't like it, I will personally buy it off of you like i will give you a dollar 95 if you buy this book you read it and you come back and say i didn't like spawn then i'd say okay give it to me i'll buy it from you right now on the spot and you know at that time i was a little investment minded because i got that from being a card collector and at that time i was also doing card shows as a kid like setting up and selling at shows so I probably ended up buying 10 copies of Spawn Number 1 just as investments, but nobody ever came to me and said, hey, I didn't like this book, I want my $1.95 back. In fact, they'd say, hey, I want the second issue, I want the third issue, and the problem was is that we dwindled the numbers, like we only ordered sure. 400 of issue 2, and then we only ordered like 50 of issue 3, and you see how this becomes a problem. Right. Because then all of a sudden you have, you know, you sell 500, 600 copies of the first issue, and then you only have, like, 50 issues of the third issue. You got a problem. Yeah, and it's just going to get worse as the further it goes. Well, yeah, and the thing was is at that time, the lead time was three months. So yeah. by the time issue one was coming out, uh, stores would be ordering issue four, like in a traditional, like, Marvel or DC where you had one every month. Because sometimes I'd place reorders, orders or reorders for the store. So, like, if issue one was hitting the shelves right now, we'd be placing the order for issue four. And then we'd say, oh, wow, issue one is selling really well. We need to order more issue fours. And now we need to call and say, can we order any more twos and threes, which we haven't gotten yet? And then, you know, and then that's why, of course, you have, like, reprints, because there'd be such a demand for, like, a certain issue of a book. And, you know, at that time, there were no digital comics. If you wanted the comic, you had to read it. So you'd have, um, you know, I remember, like, this was a problem with um, Dark Horse's Star Wars miniseries, Star Wars Dark Empire. Okay. Where, like, yep. we had issue one, and then we bought less of issue two, and we bought less of issue three, and then we bought a ton of issue four. But everybody needed two and three because they bought the first one, and they said, hey, this is great. And then, like, two came out, and we he would order less of that, right? And right. and I'd say to my boss, I'd say, look, boss, if you buy the first issue of a miniseries, if you buy 100 of them, you got to buy 100 of the second issue, 100 of the third issue. I said, because at worst case, 
you're going to probably end up selling them as a set if they don't all sell. But if you have like a bunch of issue one and like almost none of issue two and none of issue three, then you're stuck with it. You can't even like bundle it and sell it as like a set. Right. And yeah. And then you have just like those weird things as a comic book collector where you find one random issue of a mini in a, in all over the place in dollar bins and the, you know, the other one you have to get off eBay because it's nowhere to be found. And that's why you always find the first issue because right. everybody buys the first issue because that's supposed to be the one that draws people in. I mean, I think of like, I mean, just looking back at comics from the nineties, how many issue number ones had foil covers or shiny covers or, or gold embossed covers, right? Because they right. wanted to draw you in and it didn't always work because then people say, ah, this is three ninety five, and a comic book is either a dollar twenty five or a dollar seventy five, or in images case, a dollar ninety five. I don't want to spend four bucks for this book just because it has a nice cover. Well, you, your story made me think specifically of something you probably remember, and that's GI Joe number two. Uh, it was way, way underordered up to the point that for years, it was actually the most valuable of that series was issued too, because it was so underprinted. Yeah. And like a dummy, I filled out the coupon on the back of it to, uh, to um, join the GI Joe fan club. <laughs> never, never mailed it in, but my, my copy of GI Joe number two, where I'd be like, Oh, this is a $40 comic book, you know? Right. And I'd like, look at my copy and it was just in like horrible, horrible shape. Um, but yeah, for that very reason, there were a lot of GI Joe ones printed because everybody bought into that hype. I mean, right. that that comic actually had a commercial. I don't know if you remember that. I do, yeah. That, well, that was that was the only, until Malibu came along, the only commercial I ever, ever remember seeing for comics was when you would watch the G.I. Joe cartoon in the afternoon in Macon, Georgia. They would run at least once in that half hour an ad for whatever issue was out on the stands that month, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, that's that's crazy. I mean, and it just shows how big Marvel was. I mean, I remember reading um, up on how they created, well, how they did the comic for the Transformers, and I forgot who, oh, this might have been on one of those documentaries. Um, toys Netflix, That Made Us? The Toys That Made Us, yeah. yeah. And they talked about how it was pretty standard for Marvel to, like, get, like, a toy license. Like, hey, this toy is out, and we want a comic book based on it. And they'd go to Marvel, and Marvel would be like, yeah, okay, we can do that. You know, so that was just kind of like, that was a, that was a, that was a business model for them. Of course, that was also the worst, The like, you know, if you were on the low end of the, the totem pole, it'd be like, here, you're going to write this this comic book of this toy. Right. Yeah. You're going to be writing Starriers or Inhumanoids or one of the really low end toy lines. Oh, my God. Starriers. That was just. Yeah. Yeah. In a four issue limited series. Right. Yeah, or something it, like that. It, it was. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, I remember Robotics, that was another one. Yep, there was a, oh gosh, DC did a really bad, uh, and this was not the Robotech that most people know and love that come, comes from the anime, but there was a Robotech Defenders based on, like, the Rebel model kits. <laughs> there was, like, two issues of it. Weird. So, yeah. yeah, there were some weirdo ones in the 80s. But well, what's, what, Robotech, what's, what's unique, what's funny about Robotech is that, um, when Harmony Gold was going to make those uh, make their cartoon, then they found out after the fact that um, uh, Ravel had licensed the kits right. and called them Robotech. So they said, ah, well, I guess we're going to call our cartoon Robotech. 
Like, they retroactively, like, I think they were going to call it Macross, but then they said, well, they, they're they making the model kits of the mechas, and they put it under the Robotech name. So we're going to do that. I never knew that. Yeah, we're going to do that because um, we want to have this continuity with this thing. Like, this thing already exists, so there's already some equity in it. Because mm-hmm. I re- actually, and, and this is how well it worked, because... I was, you know, of course, like most boys my age, I was, like, huge into toys in the 80s, you know, when I was, like, you know, five to whatever. Probably bought toys until I was too old to be buying toys. Um, and then as an adult, I became a toy collector. <laughs> sure. But, but um, you know, I remember, like, when they said, oh, there's going to be a Robotech cartoon. I'm like, oh, like the model kits. Okay, now that's that's a toy. Or that's a, that's a cartoon now. That's that's interesting. Like, so I remember the model kits in, yeah. in, in the toy shops. But, uh yeah, Robotech. That, that's interesting. Robotech Defenders, based on the model kits. Yeah, there was. I think it was only like two issues because DC always got a thought. I think the stuff that Marvel passed on, or you know, they'd have like Power Lords. I don't know if you remember that. It was like the guy in the orange suit that he would turn around and he was a weird blue suited guy. Yeah, I remember and, the Power Lords. Like one I, of these days, I'm gonna have to rank the cartoon, <laughs> the toy properties by like. Is this an A list? Is this a B list? Is this a C list? Is this a D list? And I think Power Lords would be D list for sure. Oh, definitely. Just be kind to Robo Force. I have a soft spot for them. Do you Robo remember them? Force. They were the ones with the. They had like uh, the spring arms. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And like the suction butts. <laughs> so wasn't it like Max? Wasn't the leader named like Max something or other? Yeah, yeah. The, those I had a soft spot for. I don't know why. I don't even think I asked for them, but my mom got them for me one Christmas. And for whatever reason, I just thought they were the coolest thing. Maybe mm-hmm. because nobody had them. And, Could you know, be. And, no, and they quit making them because nobody bought them. So there you go. Nobody was ever going to have them. Well, they're probably D-list then because they didn't have a comic. They didn't have a cartoon. <laughs> right. So there you go. So Image Comics, we got Spawn come out. Uh, you really enjoyed it. It sounds like you were coming up with, you know, good suggestions for your boss. And you were hand-selling them, which is, is someone who's been – in video retail, I've worked for Blockbuster for years. Hand selling is not always easy. So I'm impressed that it sounds like you did a really good job with that. What was the next big image title that you remember people being into? Shadowhawk. Okay. Well, okay, let me let me back that backtrack that a little bit. Um Youngblood was a big deal. Sure. And Spawn was a big deal. And now I'm a little sketchy. I don't have the release dates memorized because this was a long time ago. But I know that, like, around that time, there were a lot of number ones coming out. So Wildcats number one came out. Cyber Force number one came out. But I want to say that was more towards the fall. Um, but I remember Shadowhawk was a big deal because uh, he was supposed to be kind of like their Batman a little bit, maybe. Like, he had this, like, costumed superhero. I mean, his name's Shadowhawk, right? So, I mean, right. So, you know, even though maybe Spawn is more like a Batman-looking kind of character and maybe with, like, that gothic themes a little bit, but, like, um, Shadowhawk was, uh, I mean, it had that first issue that had the silver embossed helmet on the front of it, and I remember that one was just selling out, like, people buy, like, two copies at a time, and they would just bag and board one and never look at it. Right. Uh, it was kind of an interesting, uh, you know, with you had these guys who were great comic book artists. They weren't necessarily great 
writers. Right. And so they would try to do stuff that was edgy. And I remember it was such a big deal because Shadowhawk had HIV. And this right. was like, this was like, okay, we get it. This is like the very special episode of Shadowhawk, right? Like, <laughs> right. or, you know, the after school special, right? Like, um, and I'm not trying to make light of HIV, you know, cause of course me growing up in the eighties and nineties, I mean, that was like a huge, I mean, huge thing. Um, well, I still remember where I was when Magic Johnson announced it and retired. Where were you? I was at a, uh, dance-a-thon and it was like halfway through the, you know, 36 hours when I found out about it because, you know, we had been at it and I just remember getting very emotional. A, because I was probably exhausted, Mm -hmm. but B, because, I mean, Magic was my hero and I was like, what's going on? Right. You know, and we thought that was it for him. We didn't know that he was going to, you know, became become, you know, probably even more famous uh, post HIV than he was mm-hmm. before. You mm-hmm. know, so it's crazy that because we thought, you know, you catch HIV, he's gone. But it seemed like a death sentence back it then. It did. Yeah. And that's what we were taught, you know, that right. it was something to be afraid of. And then that's it. So. So Shadowhawk was. um Made, I don't want to say made some waves, but I mean, you had, you had comic characters and they were trying to like, you know, like put issues around, like issues, like social issues, but it was always a little like, like, um, how do I, how do I say this? Like it wasn't always the most eloquently done. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, I did think of like, if you remember the infamous or famous Alpha Flight, was it number 106 where North Star says that he's gay? Right. Right. And, uh, you know, like it was that really a hundred dollar comic book? Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, definitely. I know. I remember. I remember it sitting on. <laughs> I remember it. On You're the wall. like I had it on the wall across from me. It was it was it was hanging yeah. on the wall in the shop. And one day I said, you know what? I'm never going to be able to afford this damn book. And I don't even like Alpha Flight. So I remember taking it down, unbagging it and just standing at the counter and like reading it because I was the only one in the shop. And. Sure. I was just like, okay, that, that's that's it. That's that's what all the hoopla's about, right? So yeah. Little uh, did you know, and we're in an era for like uh, ten bucks a month, you can read every Marvel that ever existed, pretty much. I know, right? It, it's, <laughs> it's, it cost me more to get rid of the the box of uh, comics in my basement. <laughs> it um, but uh yeah, so Shadowhawk was was a big deal. And then what was interesting about those early um image books, even though they couldn't like you know, there'd be issue one and no issue two, or sometimes there'd be issue two and issue three, and then you'd wait forever for a certain, you know, maybe four or whatever. But I remember Spawn appearing in one of the Shadow early Shadowhawk issues when they were trying to like make these heroes cross over in each other's books. Yeah, and make a universe. Cool. Yeah. Make like this shared universe and then how they kind of had to retcon it later on a little bit with like, if you think of like, um, with Spawn and the young blood character of Chapel being the guy who killed Al Simmons, who became Spawn. And then like later on, they kind of like, I don't, I can't, I can't say if they retconned it because I'm kind of mixing my continuities a little bit, because I know, like, in the movie, it wasn't Chapel. It was this new character they created called Jessica Priest. And right. then, like, all iterations of 
you know, well, <laughs> that all the creators couldn't get along because then you think about like how Neil Gaiman introduced the Angela character when he guest wrote issue nine and then how Angela like isn't in the Spawn comic anymore. And then they kind of replaced her with another like angel warrior character. So it's, yeah, it's just kind of funny though, how like for a little while it was like, they kind of had this good thing going where they, they were all these little independent comics under the image banner. And then they would like appear in each other's books and make it feel like, you know, something, um, something bigger. I was wonder if Todd, regrets tying in so close to some of these other creations because you know spawn and chapel are so integral to each other in the origin and at this point i mean rob doesn't even own youngblood anymore he i I can't remember we were doing youngblood a couple episodes ago on our canceled uh podcast and um one of my partners ed was saying you know he hasn't owned youngblood since like the late 90s so Mm -hmm. He can't even give Todd the rights to use Chapel at this point. And that's that's one of those things you really run a risk with creator-owned characters if you start using characters that you don't own and, you know, you don't own the whole universe. It's weird. It becomes problematic. Yeah, it, it really does, because what do you do later on when you want to spin that off into a movie or a cartoon or if you want to, like, tell more stories with those characters and you can't. So I'm not a fan of Marvel's and DC's way of where you had these guys create the characters and then they didn't own the characters, but at least it was very neat in that you could have like Spider-Man and Captain America fight together, even though, uh, you know, fight alongside each other, even though they were created by different creators, you know what I mean? Because they were all under the the Marvel book. So there is a neatness about that, but I mean, I'm not saying, well, that should be how it is. It's just definitely, I mean, if you think about it, think about how ridiculous, like, I don't say ridiculous, but the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, right? Right. And how, like, the X-Men and Spider-Man was kind of like this glaring omission for like the longest time right oh yeah your your biggest marvel character and you can't even use two of them and that's wolverine and spidey right exactly and so like you just you would think that like with like the avengers movies and then you you would want like i don't say you'd want the x-men but i mean if the x-men existed you'd want their help but they weren't they didn't exist in that universal now they kind of do but you see, but you see what I mean. It's like no, totally. I'm going to give you like another example of like a, a really messy thing. Uh, you'll, you'll find this uh, interesting. Of course, you remember the old Marvel cards from the early '90s. Oh yeah, I've got I've got the first. Oh gosh, maybe the first three sets. And do you remember the DC set? Um, yep the the gray one and the blue one. I have both mm-hmm. of those. Yep. And you know who's missing from that DC set? All the Batman characters. Yep. You know why? Uh, Tops, maybe? Yes, because Tops bought the rights to make Batman cards for the Batman movies. Right. But that and Batman was, did the animated series, too, I think. Did they Did they make... Well, but the animated series, I want to say, that came out... They started in 91 or 92, like, right around there. Okay. But if you're looking at, like, the DC cards from, like, 90, 91, they couldn't, they couldn't have Batman, Robin, Joker. But I do remember there was a Nightwing card, and I'm like, okay, I guess Nightwing is kind of not part, you know, kind of part of the extended Batman family now, so so he's maybe okay. That's, 
Maybe that's like Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch. They're kind of like on sketchy ground, so they did a workaround. Well, they're Avengers, so they they get a pass. Yeah, yeah, they're not mutants anymore. I don't know if you knew that. That I just found that out recently. I was like, what do you mean they're not mutants anymore? And like, my friend's like, oh, they haven't been mutants in years. I'm like, what the heck? But yeah, crazy. And I, and I'm assuming they did that so that they could make sure that they could be in the uh, Marvel movies and say, oh, they're not X Men characters. They're not mutants. Right, right, yeah, exactly. Because once yeah. you once you say they're mutants, then they're then yeah, they can't be uh, in, in that. So but um, yeah, but getting back to to image, um, yeah, it was nice for a little while when they would try to like help each other. I don't say help each other out, but you know, they were building something. They were building something new, and so it was. It would definitely draw interest if this character was in that book, just like they would with the Marvel books, you know. Uh, this this comic book is faltering. Let's have Spider-Man guest appear in it right now. All of a sudden, sales are up a bit. Or let's put Wolverine in this, or let's put the Punisher in this, right? And then all of a sudden, the sales go up for that book for the couple of months that they cross over. So uh, I, I liked I liked the fact that Image for a little while seemed to kind of have it go in, and then and then they didn't. So what was your thought on when? some of these other people started coming in as well, like lightning and ultraverse and uh milestone at DC. Did you start worrying at all? I mean, you had seen this, the sport card implosion. Um, were you worried that was going to happen with comics when you started seeing all these second tier heroes start showing up? Oh yeah. I mean, you knew it was going to happen because there wasn't enough interest uh, I mean, really what pushed it beyond image was more so the death of Superman Okay, was what really started pushing more companies to like say, hey, we're going to make a superhero comic because gotcha. superhero comics are hot. Right. So to me, that was probably an even bigger deal. Like image showed that other independent comics, you know, that independent comic book superheroes could flourish but then again they kind of had like these rock star artists you know behind them so that's maybe not the the best example like to follow you know what i mean like hey todd mcfarland did a book i could do a book too right no because he's like way more popular than i am right? right so um but i think that you know that that did lead to it but i remember there being more independent comics especially superhero comics and not like black and whites, but like full color comics with like nice covers and, you know, um, coming out like, yeah, a little bit after the death of Superman. So like, say like early 93, 94, like around there, you just kind of had this glut of like books. Yeah. The, the one I remember just getting and then like, Going, why did I get this? Was and I, I mentioned it. It was Lightning. I can't even remember the name of the character. I just remember that was the company, and it was poorly drawn superhero with like size or something, you know, like Raphael has. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then I'm, I'm like, get home and I read this, and I was like, I don't even know why I got this. And and at that point, I started going like, maybe I'm buying too many books. And it was one of those you're like, yeah, I'm gonna get this. I'm gonna be able to like sit on it and it'll be worth money in a couple of years. And, you know, obviously I'm sure you, well, actually post COVID, some of those nineties books have started going up again. So who knows? Right. 
COVID's changed, as you know, in, in, in sports card collecting, it's really changed how things are going. Uh, some of the stuff, what was called junk cards in the past have, have become, I don't know, temporarily inflated. Is that a good way to say it? I, I think some of that has definitely happened with comics. Yeah, and like you said, a lot of the comics could, well, like a lot of the DC and Marvel comics have been reprinted. Right. And, you know, in trade paperback format, and you said they're available digitally now. I haven't read a digital comic, by the way, so you're you're telling me that they can be read digitally, right? Yeah, so the, basically they have, like, a subscription service. Um, there's three big ones that we use in our house. We have Shonen Jump, which is, you know, the Dragon Ball, Naruto mm-hmm. manga type stuff. We have DC, which doesn't have the entire catalog because it's not as old as Marvel, but it has basically almost all the new stuff and a good bit of old stuff. Mm-hmm. And then Marvel, which if it's an important Marvel book, it's probably on there. And so, yeah. oh, sorry. And yeah, you just pay a subscription fee and you just read as much as you want for for that month. Like the Shonen Jump's like two bucks. I think DC's maybe seven and Marvel's ten. So, but yeah, you read all you want and, and uh, it's all right. there. Yeah. But all these independent books from the 90s that aren't available digitally, all of a sudden they become that thing that you have to track down and maybe pay 20 or $30 for if you really want it, right? And that's how I've turned into the weirdo book collector that I am these days is because I can get those DC and Marvel books. That's what I go look for is the weird 80s and weird 90s stuff that, yeah, it's never going to get reprinted. And most of it, like you're saying, is not going to be digital either. So if you want to read it, you're going to have to go track it down somewhere. Right, yeah. yeah. So that's kind of my niche these days is the weird stuff that has fallen in between the cracks. Who would have thought the Youngblood is one of those now because of the rights issues? That stuff's not available digitally either. Yeah, who would have thought, right? I mean, Yeah. What's his name? Uh, Prophet, that issue, that was the most expensive comic I've bought in a while because we covered Youngblood for the show. And um Number two, because the profit is actually a valuable book again. I mean, it's crazy. Think how many thousands upon thousands of copies that would have been, because that was what number two. So right. Ex- so number one was probably over ordered, and then number two is probably under ordered, and there you go. Yeah, and and that's the that's the character they care about because I think he got option for a a film or something. So that doesn't mean it's ever going to happen. That's a big thing in comics, kind of like uh just because it got optioned doesn't mean they're going to make a film out of it, but you'll see that big bump in prices sometimes for a while on them. Right. People speculating, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm still mad at myself for, for selling too soon my complete run of Peter Porker, the spectacular spider ham. <laughs> Not only did I have the complete run, I think it was 17 issues, but then I also had the issue of Marvel Tales, spelled T-A-I-L-S, yep. with Peter Porker, Hulk Bunny, and a few of the other um, Captain America and a few of the other funny animal versions of Marvel characters. And then when they ended um, Peter Porker's Spider-Ham, uh, he continued, uh, I want to say, in Marvel Team-Up. Marvel Team-Up or Marvel Tales. It was I, think it was, I think it was the backup in Marvel Tales. Marvel yeah. Tales. Okay, it was the backup stories. And so then I, I I would buy that just for the backup story. And so I want to say like around like maybe 2015 or so, I sold the whole run. And I was just one of those greedy people on eBay who said, you know what? I'm the only one selling the entire run. I'm going to put this ridiculous price on it. Well, what I thought was ridiculous. And it sold. 
you know. Right. But then Spider Ham becomes a character in Spider Man Enter the Spider Verse, and right. now I'm like, oh, now everybody knows who this character is, and he he went from niche to mainstream, not necessarily popular, but now I'm wishing I had my complete run, because then that would be the time to sell it, you know, not not uh, just because you go, eh, I could get I could get rid of these, I'm going to sell them, I have the whole run, sure, I'm going to sell them, you know, you, you wait until <laughs> they end up being in a, a Marvel movie, and then all of a sudden everybody's like, oh, this is a real character, this had a, this had a book, yeah. It's one of those things you never know. Um, I think about music and all the CDs and stuff I've gotten rid of over the years. And there was one point uh, you couldn't listen. Well, now you can't listen to Neil Young on a lot of stuff because he's been pulling off Spotify. Funnily right. enough, uh, we were trying to listen to Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, which is my wife's favorite song on there today. And they don't have the regular version on there anymore because, you know, that's Crosby, Steals, Nash. And young, so mm. now it's gone. And you know, I'm like, man, it pays sometimes to have CDs or comics or you know physical copies of stuff because you you know you don't have to worry about this stuff's going to disappear because it can. You right? Know? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is like I got rid of a lot of my CDs maybe about four years ago, right around the uh, time everybody was reading that Marie Kondo book about mm-hmm. downsizing and. Um, you know, I was just like, yeah, I'll rip this. I'll have it digitally, and then I don't need to have the physical copy. But then there were some CDs that I was just either sentimentally attached to, right. or I thought I still want to have the CD because this is one of my favorite artists, and and you, you keep it. I mean, it's the same thing with comic books, right? Like we read the story, and then we know the story, but we want to like go back and refer to it. And there's something really awesome about just having that tangible thing in your hands and being able to pick it up and reread it and maybe even feel some of the same things you felt when you read it for the first time many years ago. Oh, most definitely. The nostalgia is, is super important. You know, I, uh, I think that one of the, my favorite things is the chase when you're trying to chase how you felt when you were 12 or 14 and whether it's, listening to the Guns N' Roses for the first time or, or reading G.I. Joe 50 the first time, whatever it was, mm-hmm. you know, you're always chasing that feeling as an adult. You know, you don't always get it. No, but no. you chase it. And, 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 it, and yeah, you do have that nostalgia where I can I can pick it up and, and look at it and, and still get some of the some of the, the feelings from it, if not exactly the same thing. So, well, what, oh, I was going to go say ahead. something, but I can wait. No, go ahead. No, you know, because um, uh, I, uh, I I sent you that picture, and I thought maybe we should talk about that. Oh, totally. So, so yeah, let's talk ahead. about the Spawn picture you sent me. Yes. So, what was it? Um, Comic-Con. There was, there, I don't know what they call it these days, but I know there's Comic-Con in San Diego, and that's a big one. Right. Then there used to be Chicago Comic Con, which then became Wizard World Chicago. I think it's C2E2 that, or something these days. Um, nope, that's its own thing. Oh, okay. C2E2 is like its own, it was supposed to be like its own convention, but uh, Wizard World, Chicago Comic Con, then it became Wizard World Chicago, and then I think it became Comic Con Chicago again, because now the Comic Con name means like a lot, but, um, 
So this would have been like 93. I remember going to Comic-Con for the first time or Wizard World Chicago, whatever you want to call it. It was in Chicago. And I remember like wanting to like, I, I remember like uh, some of the other people I was maybe hanging out with wanted to get autographs of some of the image creators. And, you know, none of them would be at the image booth or around, you know, they were, they were unavailable. They were not signing autographs, right? Which is funny because they're popular. They launched these books. Everybody, you know, cares about these books that they're, they're putting out. And I don't, I don't know what they're doing, but then, you know, you could go to like, you know, you could find other creators and get autographs and stuff. So it just seemed a little bit, I mean, maybe that was just kind of where their heads were at that time. But I remember, um, McFarlane, Todd McFarlane. So a couple of things. He had decorated this race car, and it was called the Spawnmobile. Do you remember that? I do. So he had the Spawnmobile, which was on display, and, like, people are taking pictures of it and stuff because it's this car that looks like Spawn or has Spawn logo on it or whatever. And then um, sitting at McFarlane's booth was his roommate from college, Al Simmons, so McFarlane would name a lot of his characters after real people. In the case of Spawn, he named Al Simmons after his friend and roommate in college, Al Simmons. So very creative. And then Todd also got in trouble for naming the mob boss Tony Twist. And then he got sued by the St. Louis Blues hockey player Tony Twist. Right. I was reading about Tony Twist today. Yeah. And he had to settle a lot of court for... I forgot how much it was, but it was like in the millions. And so um anyways, so McFarlane would, I guess, I, I, I don't know, maybe he did it for free. But what Al Simmons would do is he would dress up in a Spawn costume for like photographs. And he was selling signed copies of him in the Spawn costume which is which seemed ridiculous to me back then, but seems even more ridiculous now that I think about it, because he wasn't like this buff dude. He was just like this regular guy. Right. right. Like, just, just like just not like a fat guy and not like a skinny guy, just like a regular dude. So like a regular dude puts on a superhero costume that looks pretty good, but isn't like movie prop quality. And I guess I also feel kind of bad because I bought a copy and. <laughs> He would personalize them. So my first full name is Salim. It means peace. And so I said, he says, oh, well, I'm going to, I personalize all the photos that I sign. And I'm just thinking, you know, I hate it when people do that. Like, well, you're going to pay me money for this autograph, but then I'm also going to personalize it so you can't turn around can't and flip it. Yeah. sell it to somebody else. And this was before eBay was even a thing. And so I said, all right, well, hey, my name means peace. Would you write to Salim peace? Al Simmons, a.k.a. Spawn. And he says, yeah, that sounds really cool. You know, he's like, I never thought of, like, doing an inscription. I would just sign to so-and-so and then sign my name. And so, like, I asked him to put all this extra stuff. And he signed it in silver. And 30 years later, it still looks pretty good. So, yay, I guess. I got Al Simmons' autograph for what it's worth, which is probably the $7 that I paid for it. <laughs> you never know. Now there's a wide open world. There might be somebody out there who might want it, you know. Well, uh, bidding starts at $8, <laughs> but uh, it's got my name on it, so oh, I can't do it. I can't I can't flip it. Nah, you should keep it. I'm, I'm going to keep it. I've had it all these years. I have no reason to get rid of it now. It's 
It, it, it led to this pod, me being a guest on your podcast. So it's <laughs> worth every penny that I paid for it. So the other thing you showed me is um, the Spogs, oh. which which were the the Spawn Pogs. Now some of some of the listeners, i.e., my son, are not going to have a clue um, what a Pog is. Now some of the listeners are going to know what Pogs are because they lived through it like we did. Mm-hmm. So 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 give a breakdown of what a Pog is. Pog is a disc. It is like a, it's like the size of a half dollar. They call them milk caps because I guess they were like the size of like a milk cap. And um, you would stack them up and then somebody would take a heavier pog, which would be thicker, called a slammer. And you would take that slammer and you would throw it down as hard as you could on that pile of pogs. And then any pog that was flipped over when the stack of pogs like got like scattered from being slammed, I guess you'd get to keep them. I guess that's how the game was played. I don't know because they never played pogs with anybody. I was gonna say, did anybody play pogs or for them? I mean, people were trying to keep them pristine. I'm sure. You know, I I bought those because I was into trading cards and there were no spawn trading cards, and so sure. these were the next best things. And I. You know, that was like one of those things that I bought that I knew was stupid at the time, but I bought them anyway. And I kind of felt like, like, I didn't feel so stupid for buying the Al Simmons autograph, but for buying the the Spawn Pogs, I felt kind of dumb about that. And, um, like, there were hockey Pogs that maybe came out, like, a year later, and I, I didn't buy them because I just didn't care. Because it was like, well, there's hockey cards, I don't need hockey Pogs, but... right. These spawn pogs, I'm spogs. I'm going to buy because I like spawn and I collect spawn stuff. And uh, yeah, and they were uh, they're kind of dumb, but I had them, and then I finally had to get rid of them. Like I threw them on eBay like maybe 15 years ago when I was uh, downsizing some of my collection. Did you did you at least recoup the investment? I, you know, I honestly don't remember, okay. um, but. The way I see it, um, I, I have this, um, this I don't know if I call it a, a, a saying, more like a mantra, where I just think of it all as chewed bubblegum, right? When you sure. chew the bubblegum, you've gotten your enjoyment out of the bubblegum, right? And no, then you spit true. it out because you're done with it. So if you buy a box of trading cards for 50 bucks, you open the cards, you get some enjoyment from opening them, looking at them, maybe you keep them for a while, and then you sell them. A lot of people are like, oh, I need to get back 50 bucks because that's what I paid for it. A lot of times you're not going to get that. But then if somebody gives you 10 bucks, you got to think of it as like somebody giving you 10 bucks for that wad of chewed gum that you right. enjoyed. So oh, yeah, that's, that's like with uh, books, you know, you're not going to, for the most part, buy a book and then go take it down to the books a million and get, you know, seven ninety five or whatever you paid for it. You're going to get. 10, 25% of what it, you paid for it if you're lucky. If so, you're lucky, yeah. yeah. I mean, I remember selling a bunch of, uh, I don't even know what it was, but we have, we have a place in Chicago called Half Price Books. Right. And they, um, they, I, I forgot what I was selling them and I just said, oh, okay. And then they're like, I'm like, and then they're like, and if you want to sell us, it was like, I think I had some like video games and like some books and they were like giving me these prices and they were not great prices. No. And I said, okay, cool. And they're like, wow, you're taking this really good. Most people get really angry when we say you can only give them $2 for this. I go, yeah, no, I don't care. I said, I got my enjoyment out of it, and now it's time for somebody else to get their enjoyment out of it. And I said, and at the same time, I come here to get 
books for like four or five bucks. But if you're paying people four or five bucks for a book, then I'm not going to get it for four or five dollars. You know what I right. mean? Like, so I got my enjoyment out of this thing. You're giving me two dollars for it. That's fine. I got it out of my house. Somebody else can enjoy it now, hopefully. That's awesome. I've never looked at cards that way, but that makes perfect sense. The half the enjoyment of cards is, you know, organizing them, opening them. For me, putting them in pages, flipping through the pages, then at some point you you take them out of the pages because I, I get too many albums or I moved yep. or whatever. So, yeah, I get that. That makes sense. So my question on the Pogs then, as a business person, mm-hmm. did they sell or were they just produced? Because my understanding is there was a big production of Pogs, but they never really caught on. They never really caught on, and they, um like – if the spawn ones might have sold and like certain ones might have sold, but if people were buying them, they were maybe buying them because they liked the licensed character that was on them. They didn't really care about the game. Um, Another funny story, just, you know, being somebody who was doing things in the eighties and nineties. So I I had a, I had a mall job in the nineties. I was like, this was after I left the comic book store. I ended up working at the mall across the street. And I think, I had a job at a a t-shirt store and like there was like a little kiosk nearby that sold pogs. Like it was some, it was like, it was literally just some dude from like, I don't know where he was from, but he had, he had an accent. He had some sort of a drawl and he was working in this pog store. Like I'm not making this up. And I love that there was a pog story. Yeah, we'll we'll call it a pog store, but really it was like one of those sad little like carts in the middle of the mall that doesn't even have like its own break room. And like I mean, when I worked in the t-shirt store, it was four glass counters. I couldn't really hide, but at least I had like all four borders around me. Right. Right. I, I. I would sit there and read comic books and people would walk up and they'd want to buy a Snoop Dogg t-shirt and I'd sell it to them. And then I'd go back to reading comic books. And that was my, that was my thing. But like this guy sitting on his stool and I remember they had like these clear, like plastic, you know, like the fish bowls, like the, just the clear, like typical fish bowl that you see. Sure. It's like your cheap fish bowl. He had, they had all these fish bowls that were full of pogs and you would go up, and I don't know how much they'd sell them for, but I, I, I don't remember. All I know is that I looked at him, and I said, whatever they're paying you, it's not enough. And then he looked at me, and he said, yeah, I get 10% of all sales. I said, well, then it's definitely not enough. <laughs> oh, no. And then I remember at the end of the day, I said to him, I said, well, how are sales for Pogs today? He's like, we made $8. I'm like, great, you worked all day for 80 cents. Oh, my gosh, that's horrible. Dude, of course they went out of business, but it was right. like, I mean, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily visionary at age 20, but I knew that working in a store that sold Pogs was not a good business to be in. Sure. You know, it's it was... It was too much of a niche thing that, like, I could see, like, maybe card shops carrying it. But, no, it was just, um, it was just, yeah, pretty terrible. So the image boom comes and and really hits in the time period you're there. What was the first one that came out from image where you're like, nobody's buying this book? This book is stupid. <laughs> Why did this book get made? Oh, that's easy. 
That that would be uh Trencher. Trencher, okay. Was that uh was that Keith Giffen? It was Keith Giffen, yep. Yeah, Keith Giffen had that really weird art style that just he put he he put way too much detail on stuff that you couldn't tell what it was. Right. So it could just be garbage, but it had a lot of detail. And I like you know, I, I know he did Lobo, and I was a fan of Lobo, but I was a fan of the Simon Bisley-drawn Lobo and not the Keith Giffen-drawn Lobo. Cause, sure. Or, or you know, just... <laughs> I mean, because it's like night and day with the art style. and, and But, um, so I remember Trencher came out, and I remember everybody looked at it, and they were just like, huh. And that was the book where people started saying, maybe I'm not going to buy everything by image. Gotcha. Okay. You know, this this is the one where I'm going to put this one back because nah, it it just it there was nothing. It did it didn't look interesting. It didn't uh you know you paged through it. I, I I mean I vaguely remember it. I mean I remember Union Number One at least that had like a cool looking cover and it was like a superhero and you're like okay cool this is cool right and uh Trencher like nobody nobody wanted and I remember like. I want to say that that book got dropped by Image because they couldn't meet their deadline. Like, one came out, and then number two came out. But that was an example where we had, like, a couple hundred of issue one, and then we had, Mm -hmm. like, none of issue two. And then if it continued, it might have continued under its own imprint. But then again, I'm not a comic book historian. I'm just some guy remembering putting the books out every week. Uh, you know, the other one that people kind of panned was the uh, Mystery Incorporated, where uh, Image tried to do this whole 1963, yep. like, retro series of comics. And, again, this was one where my boss bought, like, I'm not exaggerating, he probably bought a 1,000 or 1,200 copies. Well, Alan and, Moore was a big name, so I'm sure he thought that was going to help, you know. Yeah, I mean, Alan Moore was a big name, and people who liked Alan Moore would buy Alan Moore stuff, but Alan Moore was the kind of name at the time that, like, if you put Todd McFarlane's name on it, people would just buy it without even looking at it, right? Sure. Alan Moore, it's kind of like if you were in the know, you'd be like, oh, yeah, Alan Moore, he's he's awesome, right? But, you know, people were drawn to the art. Like, yeah. I'm not saying that people weren't drawn to writing. Of course they're drawn to writing, but, like, the fanboys are drawn to the art, Right. So, especially especially in that time frame, I think that was you had to have the heart, the hot artist on those books. So and, the the uh you know, so the one the people who were buying five copies of something, they were buying it because they liked the artist, not necessarily because they liked the writer. If they liked the writer, they were buying one copy to read and enjoy and not five copies to uh, invest, right? Right. Um but with 1963, that was one where I remember like we had a ton of them and like nobody would buy them. And I want to say I, I might've put them on the counter to try to get people to buy them. And like, nobody would buy them. Although I didn't make a guarantee that I'd buy it if they didn't <laughs> like it. Um, but then I told my boss, I, I, you know, this is me again. I'm probably 17 at the time. And you think, you know, everything when you're 17. And I say to my boss, I say, boss, we got so many copies of this book. Why don't we sell? Why don't we mark it down to a buck? Just get people to buy it, just to just to buy it, just to get rid of it, you know, because at the time he was paying 40 cents on the dollar. So he probably had 80 cents or 75 cents tied up in each issue. 
Sure. And so I'm like, you know, just get rid of it. And then, you know, that frees up some money for you to buy other stuff. Um, cause we were always behind in paying our distributor. And, and I knew this at 17, you know, I knew enough about what, what was going on with the company or with the, the, the bookstore. But he was like, well, no, because if I market to a buck, then that really sticks it to the people who paid a dollar 95 for it. And I go, oh, okay. But then, like, literally, like, that October, we were giving them away as trick-or-treat gifts. And people were pissed because they're like, well, what the hell? I bought this for $1.95, and now you're giving it to me for free for Halloween. And I'm just like, well, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I say, <laughs> there's, there's the trick. <laughs> well, I think, going back to Trencher, I think, if I remember it right, there was Trencher – um, Shaman's Tears, Wildstar, it was in, um, uh, what was the Larry Strobe, uh, Strowman one, um, Tribe. Oh yeah, Tribe. Yeah. And, and Larry, the Larry Strowman one's actually a bad example because that one, you know, he's well known more for the art side than the writing side. But in general, you know, the Ordway, the, the Giffen, the Mike Grail, these were like more established, older artists. And when the first cuts came, I think those were the ones that got chopped right away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not the the hot new artists. And like I said, with the exception of Tribe, I think Tribe was just super late. He never got like the second issue done. But they they cut those old guys off. Not that they were even old at that point, you know. Because I mean, for Pete's sake, Giffen and uh, Ordway are still doing stuff, and I think Mike Grell might even still be doing something like at least covers. But you know, they chopped those off like right away. Whereas you know. Brigade and Supreme and I don't know how many Liefeld books there were there. That studio did so many books. Did was there life in all of those or did that like start, you know, getting chipped away pretty quick? I mean, did troll number one sell? I mean, was there a demand for that sort of stuff? Um, I, I can't honestly can't remember with troll. I do remember Supreme being popular. Okay. Because, at least to the younger fans, they were like, and when I say younger, I mean like maybe mid-teens and younger. Because to them, I mean, that was, you know, if, if you want to think of a lot, like, you, you brought up Guns N' Roses earlier, right? And that's kind right. of what put rock music on the map for me. So that's kind of like your point of reference. Like, hey, this Guns N' Roses band is new and they're really awesome and rock music is awesome. And you kind of forget that, well, there was rock music for, you know, 40 years before Guns N' Roses, right? But you just kind of know what is just kind of comes out at that time for you. And so a lot of them were seeing like, Oh yeah, Supreme. And he's the superhero who's been around forever. And then the older fans were like, well, one Superman's been around forever. And that's who Supreme (laughs) is supposed to be like. And two, like I could actually go back and read a Marvel or DC comic from the sixties, whereas image is just telling us what happened in the sixties, but it didn't really happen in the sixties. This is just them painting this backstory of these characters and saying, Oh yeah, back in the, back in the forties, Supreme fought in world war two. Whereas, you know, if you dig, you'll find like Superman or, you know, those old Captain America comic books that they don't talk about anymore, where he was fighting the Nazis, you know, when it was under the timely comics imprint. I love that. That makes perfect sense. And that, and that would be the appeal to a a character like, uh, what was his name? Super Patriot for Larson, where he's supposed to be a a character who's been around for forever. And, um, I want to say it was Die Hard for Youngblood, where he was supposed to be like the non-aging cyborg. I think he was supposed to have been around in World War II or what have you either. 
I'm that's glad awesome. you brought up. Oh, sorry. No, I just I like that. I I never thought about that, but that makes perfect sense. If they have built-in history and continuity, like from the get-go, that that's a good point. I'm glad you brought up uh, Super Patriot because I actually liked that character. Like, oh yeah, I, I like the character. I, I like the fact that he was like supposed to be like this Superman, like this or this Captain America, basically like this. Uh, not immortal, but like a very um. Uh, like an almost infallible superhero, and then what happens to him? He gets gunned down. You right. Know? So, not, so you have this guy like who is like not invulnerable, but he's he's a very tough dude. And then he, you know, but then he meets modern weapons, and he gets shredded, and then he gets rebuilt as a cyborg. And then for like a little while, he's like this mindless cyborg because he kind of got like reprogrammed because he was actually fighting Savage Dragon in an issue. I think in issue two. But then, I don't know, whatever, he the, he comes about his senses. So, like, he's still aware of who he is. So he's almost kind of like a RoboCop-type character, you know. Right. So that kind of, that, that definitely fit the times, you know, to have this kind of, like, cyborg superhero. Uh, I also like the fact that Savage Dragon was based in Chicago. Although I was going to bring that up at some point today, and I totally forgot. Yeah, I was going to ask, did you have any fondness for Dragon? I, you know, I liked the character. Mm-hmm. I liked the book. I liked Eric Larson's artwork. Um, I, I thought it was kind of cool to see a superhero just be like, hey, you know what? I got superpowers, but I'm not going to be a vigilante. I'm just going to use my powers for the law, you know, for the law. And so I thought right. that was a very interesting take on a character because it seems like everybody wants to make a character who's like this dark brooding vigilante, you know, who does his own thing and plays by his own rules, and here you had Savage Dragon, who's just like, nope, I'm a cop, and I'm really strong, so they like having me on the force, you know? So, uh, I, I like Savage Dragon. Um, yeah. And I like Super Patriot, and uh, I didn't like Trenchard, though. I will say this little fun random thing about Tribe. Um, Tribe had its own trading card series, which... For, is, for one issue? Well, because at the time, these were all hot properties, right? Right. So... Tribe had a set of cards that was issued by a company called Press Pass, who was mainly known for doing race car cards. Well, later they became known for becoming like the racing car card company where they would do like NASCAR trading cards. Because many years later, I worked for a toy company and we owned Press Pass. And I remember talking to one of the people who worked there forever saying, hey, didn't you guys used to make tribe trading cards? He goes, oh, yeah, that was like our first non-sports set. That was just when we came into the to the industry and we were trying to, like, grab, like, any property that we could, right? So that was kind of it. You had this new company that was finding its legs, and it sees this comic book that might be popular. Right. Yeah, I mean, you, you don't know. I mean, we... There's <laughs> every company makes it has questionable decisions, right? Like I remember when um was it Jim Shooter when he started his own company and then he did uh, a book called Warriors of Plasm. Yeah. And I remember like the trading card set and the binder to hold the trading card set came out before the first issue. And people were looking at it. And they'd say, well, I'm sure these cards are cool, but I'd like to read the comic before I decide if I'm going to buy trading cards based on the comic. And that was the problem, was that a lot of these guys 
they they wanted to license everything, but they, they weren't making the books fast enough or regular enough, at least for that first year, um, first couple of years. So the the the, the popular notion of the death of the '90s, or at least that that '90s boom, let's say, usually gets attributed to three different books. Uh, one is the uh, Return of Superman. Mm-hmm. The other one is Turok from Valiant. But since we're talking image, we're going to talk about the third one. And that's Deathmate being late from Valiant and Image. What do you remember about Deathmate? Do you remember that book? I'm trying to remember. I'm still thinking of uh, Deathmate. Was that the crossover? It was. It was the crossover. There were four colors. I think it was uh, black, red, uh, blue, and gold. And the image produced ones, the the Valiant ones came out like right away. Oh, yeah. Okay. And the image produced ones, which Liefeld and, and, and company were working on, were like over a year late, if I remember it correctly, at least one of the volumes. Yeah, you know what? I'm uh, pulling up issues of this now, and yes, I do remember this. And yeah, there were like, uh, yeah, 93 and 94. Um, yeah, there was a lag of six months in between issues. Okay, I'm cheating. I'm looking at Wikipedia now. But, <laughs> okay. um I just do you remember this because the story, the popular story, and I, this is why I'm asking you. The popular story was comic stores ordered these. The first two sold well. It was a very expensive book for the time. Mm-hmm. You know, four or five bucks now, nobody would bat an eye because that's what a book costs these days. But at the time, the the stores bought into these books. They shipped super late, so late that by the time they showed up, nobody was interested in it anymore. Yeah, that's a, that's an example of it where you had uh yeah, I remember we had so many copies of the the silver issue. Okay. Uh, I'm looking at this, yeah, and I'm looking at this and some of these are 4.95 and some of these are 2.95 and I also remember there was a um there was a uh I want to say there was a trading card uh set of that as well because everything had trading cards back then. What was it? Um, Comic Images, I think, did a. I know they did the Valiant cards before Upper Deck took over. Is mm-hmm. it Comic Image? Is that the name? Comic of the Images, yeah. Yeah. Comic I Images know. was huge. They would do, like, everything had a Comic Images set. Like, G.I. Joe had a Comic Images set, and they were, like, there's, like, a ton of, like, Marvel sets from uh, right up until before Impel started doing them. Um, like, a Punisher set, a Spider Man set, a Captain America set from, like, the late 80s to, like, early 90s. Yeah, that story I was telling you about, oh, yeah, comics, uh, they, when they, when we went to visit them the first time, and, you know, I asked for the issues of Prime, that's what they gave my son. They gave him one of those DC sets. They gave him uh, X-Men set, because X-Men, of course, had their own, um, I don't remember if it was Skybox or Impel. It may have been Skybox by that point. And they gave him a Spider-Man comics image set just to get him out of the store. Now you probably could sell those, but at that point, you know, six years ago, they were like, could you please take these? And, and of course, it made my son happy. Right. But yeah. But, yeah, those comic images that were super generic and ubiquitous, they'd have the very, like, generic kind of, like, summary of the front of the card on, like, white stock. And then the front of the card 
would almost, I feel like it was always bordered. It wasn't like it was full bleed edge. Right. And, and they weren't, very, I just don't remember them being very attractive in general. Well, the Ghost Rider ones were, uh, had black borders and they had glow in the dark ink on them. Okay, now that's a selling point. At least. That was that was a cool set. I have some of those lying around somewhere. But uh, here's what I want to say about comic images. As far as like, if you're thinking about trading cards and you're thinking about investments, like one thing I'm noticing, I sell at a lot of sports card shows, and I notice a lot of people selling Marvel and DC cards and like making money on them. And so I actually dug through my collection and I found like just lots of like extras, like. Oh, I have an extra Deadpool card. I throw $10 on it. Somebody buys it. Nice. Seriously. Like, and this is just a common card, but, right. you know, I just, I put it out there and if some, nobody wants it, that's fine. But like people were going through my superhero cards and they're buying like, you know, two, three dollars. Oh, this one's got Wolverine. I'll buy it. It's three dollars. Okay. You know what I mean? And so like, it's funny because we're starting to see that with superhero cards where they're starting to kind of realize baseball card type collectability where you have people buying the ones of the characters that they like much like they would buy a baseball card of a player that they like and not necessarily be concerned with the full set. But what I want to add to that is that those comic images cards are were, were printed in far less quantities than the ones done by Skybox or Impel or oh, sure. Ultra. So, right. I mean, if you buy... Um, you know, a Marvel set from the early 90s that's, like, from uh, Impel, okay, maybe that's a $50 set, maybe that's a $60 set, which I think is kind of a lot, because I think I sold mine 12 years ago for, like, $10, and I'm a little sore about that, but whatever, you know, you yeah, want to get rid of it. probably get triple or more of that now. Yeah. Chewed gum, you know, chewed gum. Yeah, I, exactly. I had, <laughs> had to get rid of it. Some sure. every Not everything has to go, but, you know, had to downsize. Right. Um, but those comic images sets were only sold in card stores. So, right. you know, whereas like Marvel 1, Marvel 2, Marvel 3, Fleer Ultra X-Men, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, those were also sold at uh, non-card shops. Those are just sold at like, or they weren't only sold at card stores and comic stores, or right. comic stores, they'd also be sold at card stores because they were cards, and they'd also be sold at like grocery stores and stuff like that. Stationary stores, all sorts of stuff in the old days, yeah. But comic images... Like, not even the trading card stores carried the comic images cards. Those were really just the comic book stores, if I gotcha. remember correctly. Yeah. Well, there you go, guys. Go dig up your comic images, and maybe there's some uh, use for them out there. I'll tell that to Jack. He'll be really excited that he still has that Spider-Man one if he can find it. Yeah, I hope he does. <laughs> That's one of those hazards of moving. Finding everything takes you a couple of years, usually. Um, well, I'm going to wrap up probably the next 10 minutes or so. Sal, we may have to do a part two because this has been a blast and there's so many things that I want to ask you about the, the, the different aspects of working in a, in a store. But sure. I want to delve a, just for a couple of minutes before we say goodnight. I want to delve into uh, a couple of things that are personal interest to me. So, uh, I know you had mentioned that you had the announcement of Spawn, uh, through Malibu. And initially, <clears throat> excuse me, image was being put out through Malibu. Yes. So tell me a little bit about what you the the Malibu was it Sun is that the name of the newsletter? 
Yeah, so the Malibu Sun newsletter, I remember so the May 92 issue, which I, I sent you a copy or I sent you a picture of. Right. And I, I sold my copy a long time ago um, when I, again, was downsizing and I sold off my Spawn comics. Um, but I remember that issue. It was a freebie. Like, we, you'd get a Malibu Sun. Um, I think they give you some for free. I think you could buy more for, like, 10 cents or whatever. And they really wanted you to just give them away to people so that they would see what Malibu comics were coming out because it was a promotional tool by the company. I remember we were selling that issue of the Malibu Sun for five bucks. Gotcha. Even though it was supposed to be free, we were selling them because my boss was like, hey, this is the first appearance of Spawn. Okay, well, sure, if you want to call it that. <laughs> but, I mean, he's on the cover, so, okay, I mean, if that's if, if that's what you want to call it, that's fine. People are buying it because, again, investments, right? Oh, new character, Todd McFarlane, all his um, Spider-Man books were having, like, really ridiculous prices at that time because right. it was so popular. And then, And not only that, but then Venom was, like, a super popular bad guy. So, like, you kind of had, like, this one-two punch where you had – well, three punches. You had a, the popular character of Spider-Man, the popular villain of Venom, and the popular artist of Todd McFarlane. So then all of a sudden these books are going for a lot of money, you know, the uh, that McFarlane worked on. So, of course, anything that he was working on next, people were interested in. And so I remember that not being a giveaway, but being something that we sold, even though it was a giveaway. That's so crazy because uh, I, I, there's so many of those things that were giveaways um you know, we haven't really talked much about Valiant other than a little bit about Deathmate, but I, I want to say their big thing started as a freebie, and um, what was it called? Now I can't think of it. It was the big crossover they did that pretty much was the last big thing Shooter did, and then they they kicked him out of the company. Was that a Deathmate? No, was it Deathmate? Deathmate 2000? It, Unity! It was Unity. Oh. Yeah, yeah, because Unity did have a Unity 2000. But, yeah, Unity started as one of those, like, free handout things. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of those things, like the Marvel DC, and you may have been gone from the store by then when Marvel did the DC team-up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I was. I had, I had left the comic shop by then. Yeah, that was, like, a big thing, and that was a freebie. And those were going for money at one point because, you know, they're they're not supposed to be kept. So when when those kind of things get found by collectors, you know, uh the preview the previews uh from Diamond, sometimes you'll see one of those get hot for some reason because it has like the spawn and it's because nobody keeps their previews. Mine goes into the recycling. Actually mine right. goes to mine goes to a, our librarian who orders graphic novels and then it goes into the recycling. <laughs> so Right. Yeah, they're not supposed to have a life. So it's it's cool that that kind of stuff when it does have any value and uh I don't know. It's just it's just neat things that you think is like, "Oh, I read this, I tossed it in the garbage," but you know that comic uh news or what have you might actually have first appearance or the first drawn picture of Savage Dragon or whatever. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Um so the only other things I wanted to ask you were these two things. First one, you uh, showed me some pins that you had, and one of them I got excited about because I am a big fan of uh, manga. You are uh, a Ranma fan? Oh, yeah. I, I love... Oh, God. 
you know, I'm a Ranma fan, but I'm going to just come out and say, no, I haven't read every comic and I haven't read or watched every anime because after a while they get a little formulaic and you kind of sure. get bored of it. So, so I, I never really saw it all the way through to the end, but I mean, for the longest time I was tracking down all the comic books and I was one of those idiots paying thirty four ninety five for a VHS tape with two episodes on it. Right. Because you couldn't rent anime at Blockbuster. Yeah. If they had if they had it, it was called Japanimation and it would right. be a section and it'd have like ten VHS tapes, maybe one was Vampire Hunter D. Of course they had Akira, you know, they'd have maybe a few other ones, but you weren't gonna be able to rent it, so I remember I would go um I would go to uh, Gamer's Paradise, and they would order me Ranma tapes, and I'd buy them. And uh, then, or that same convention, maybe the one in '93, maybe the one in '94, I can't remember. But I remember like buying a bunch of Ranma tapes. Like that became like my fixation for a while. Was trying to find like tapes, posters, uh, music from the uh, show. I-, I was obsessed. So was. Manga something carried in the store because, like I said, I'm coming from middle slash South Georgia, and I don't remember seeing any manga. The only manga I ever owned in my life at that point was uh, uh the Taito game Golgo 13. You could mail away for the first issue. So, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't have known that was manga because I wouldn't have known what the heck manga was. I mean, do you remember any other Japanese comics at the comic store? Oh yeah, I mean, okay. again, my boss would order pretty much anything, at least one copy of it, just because, like I said, if it was published, he thought, well, I'm a bookstore and I should have this. And even if it's just one copy, and and I think that was just kind of like because he really believed in comic books and not just saying, well, we're just going to buy Marvel and DC and that's it. Um, But yeah, I mean, I remember we had like Mobile Suit Gundam and we had a lot of the Viz comics. Okay. From the late 80s and the early 90s, we had a lot of Viz comics. You know, we had a lot of the other work by Rumiko Takahashi. We had like, uh, Lam Ursa Yasura. We had, um, oh god, what were some of the other titles? I can't remember now. Um, Inuyasha, would, would that have been too early for that? Yeah, that was more of a mid-90s thing. That was kind of okay. like her follow-up to Ranma, was Inuyasha mm-hmm. was like her next project. I'm going to kill the name, but there was Mason Ikaku or something. Uh, Mason Ikoku, yeah, yeah, which, yeah, that's, um, that was around the same time. I didn't like it as much as Ranma. Um, sure. It was, or it might have been a little, I, I can't remember. I know Lum was like, in the 80s, and then Ron Moe is, like, late 80s to, like, mid-90s. But we would have, like, some of the mecha anime, or, excuse me, manga, and um, some of the other... uh, I'm trying to think, like, what did we... I'm trying to think of some of the other ones, like... (sighs) Bubblegum Crisis. You know, one that I know that we had, we had, had, like, Lone Wolf and Cub. Okay, like, from first publishing? Yes, yes, exactly. Like, so anything that got Americanized... We would we would get even gotcha. if it was just like very small, um, very little copies of. And and again, here was the 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 problem with the way my boss ordered things. Ranma one half issue one, he ordered a couple copies of it, and I bought wow. I bought it because somebody told me, oh, it's about this boy who turned into a girl when he gets hit with water. I'm like, oh wow, that sounds fascinating. So I bought the first issue. I bought the second issue. Which what was interesting about that is that Viz 
made those full color books at four ninety five a copy. And this was back in ninety two. That was a lot of money for a comic book. Yes, it was. Issue three, because one and two did not sell through very well. Issue three was only uh was black and white. And again, because of the way my boss didn't really order you know, he'd order everything, but he'd screw up the numbers because he didn't quite do a great job with numbers. He ordered one copy of issue three and like one copy of issue four. And there was another employee who worked at the other store who got them. Oh, no. So I was like, going to say, I at was, least you got your copy, but no. Oh, I got one and two because one and two, he'd always order at least one copy for each right. store. And then like three, he might just order one and it would go to the bigger store because it had more people or more customers. And right. so I remember like me and this other employee who was like a couple years older than me, but he he was like, I was an art, artsy kid and he was like an artsy kid, but like older than me. So like he would buy a lot of the same stuff I would buy. So we were kind of like at odds and like, dude, stop buying this so I could buy it or <laughs> tell the boss to order more than one freaking copy of this book. <laughs> right. You know, that allegedly nobody wants, but your two employees are fighting over <laughs> All right, so last question of the night. Um, if you could go back and have the the entire run of any of those comics that you read in the 90s, what would it be? Hmm. You know, it would it would be Spawn. Okay. That's it what would, I thought you might say. It would be Spawn because Spawn went on a long time. I mean, it went it went on long enough to have like bad stories and good stories and sure. okay stories and and it, it, it lasts. I mean, it, it's, it, 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 that would be a book that I kind of wish I stuck with yeah. a little more, but you know, your interests change. I mean, I, and I, you know, like I went from like buying comics as a kid to like later on collecting comics as a kid or as an adult, but then like also collecting cards and collecting action figures. And then like eventually like the collecting comics kind of faded sure. and, you know, as I got more and more to like collecting vintage action figures and then that kind of fell by the wayside as I got more and more back into trading cards. But, uh, Spawn was just a good book. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't perfect, but it was just really interesting. And, you know, I, I have a story. I don't know if we have time, but I have this Spawn story that story. I wanted to tell. Yeah. So one of the things we would do in our comic shop is we would, um, distribute to, a uh, pharmacy like you know how pharmacies will sometimes have comic books in their store yeah so this little this little mom and pop pharmacy they wanted to have comic books and she couldn't order enough comics to actually get like anything from a distributor so my boss would you know order comics for her or just you know say well you know we're ordering 400 copies of x-men we'll send you 10 right or whatever right sure the problem was was that like he would just send her everything whether she wanted it or not, you know, oh, here's Spawn, right? Here's this, here's that, here's whatever, right? And so the thing was is that she didn't want all of these image comics. And it was funny because he'd send her image comics and then people would be like, oh, I really want Shadowhawk number one. And they'd be like, well, we're sold out. And then, you know, he ended up sending like 10 or 20 copies of it to this pharmacy and they weren't selling there because – Nobody was going to buy it from the pharmacy, right? right? So then she'd send back the books that couldn't sell, and she was getting angry with my boss, and then my boss didn't want to deal with her. So he said, all right, just, just send her some books, right? And so I'd send her, like, send her some books, or he, like, he tasked it to the other um, employee who was kind of, n- not the guy that 
also wanted the Ron McComics from another <laughs> guy that I work with who was a little slow on the uptake. So he also sent her like everything and it was pissing her off because she didn't want like the edgy black and white comics at her little mom and pop pharmacy. She wanted like Archie comics and Spider-Man comics. Right. right. So she calls me up one day and she is furious and she's like, I don't want you to send me this Spawn comic anymore. I am so upset. I'm like thinking, Spawn? I'm like, lady, Spawn is an awesome comic. What are you talking about? I'm like 17 or 18 at the time. She's like, no, it's not. It's about a child murderer. Right. Billy Remember Kincaid. Yep. Billy Kincaid. So what was it? Issue 5? Yep. And then he reappeared in issue 8. The two issues of the book that she happened to get in her store were oh, no. issues five and issues eight, which both centered around that character, the child murderer, Billy Kincaid. Right. So she thinks this book is about a child murderer, and she is furious that we're sending it to her store. And I'm trying to explain to her, no, it's about this superhero who was a, a, a government assassin who was murdered makes a deal with the devil, comes back from the dead, and ah, uh, you know what? I, I just made it worse by telling you. Exactly, I don't know right? if she'd like that either. <laughs> I couldn't explain. So then she's just like, "Can you just send me some like traditional comics?" So then I'm like, "Yeah." So then like the next month, I send her like Betty and Veronica and like X Men and like Spider Man, and then she's all happy and stuff. But I just thought that was funny that. Her only experience with the book was reading issue five and issue eight. And those were like the worst issues for anybody to read unless you knew what was going on in the story. Right. It's like when you watch it's like when you watch a, a, a TV show and then like when your parents sit down and watch an episode of that um TV show with you. Well, this is going to be the episode about preteen sex. And now right. you're sitting there all awkward and like. Your parents are like, well, I don't know if I want you watching this show. And you're like, no, mom, it's really not. This isn't what the show is about. This is just a special episode where they're having this talk about this. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, this is the yeah. one where the Maytag man is the creepy guy who runs a, bu- uh, a, a bicycle store. <laughs> 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 yeah, they're not usually like this, I swear. He usually makes funny jokes. <laughs> right, right, yeah. So oh, yeah. that was, uh, that. yeah. So Spawn wasn't for everybody, but uh, I liked it. Yeah, I, 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 I'll throw mine out there. I think of all of them, I'm probably am the biggest fan of Dragon, and uh, I don't always love where uh, it goes these days because it, it gets a, it gets very adult. Sometimes I'm a little prude when it comes to that sort of thing because I do always have in the back of my mind, oh my gosh, what if one of the kids grabs this and this is not something they need to be reading? Um, you know. How did we talk? How did we talk for an hour or whatever without bringing up Image Zero? I don't know. Like oh my I'm saying, God. we may have to we may have to talk again. But tell me about Image Zero. So certain Image comics had a coupon in them, and you had to buy all the comics, and then you mailed them in for Image Issue Zero. Right. And of course, everybody was clamoring. I want to say it was like Spawn Issue Four had the coupon for Image uh, Image Number Zero. And, like, you had to buy the certain books. You'd mail in the coupon. You'd get Image Zero. Um, at the time, I was led to believe that it was going to be the first issue of a crossover event. Mm-hmm. You right. know, kind of like a Crisis on Infinite 
Earths or a uh, or an Infinity War type of thing, like whatever right. um, Images version was. And it ended up just being this, like, collection of, like, short stories that were, like, four or eight pages each. And it was very anticlimactic. Like, <laughs> between what was hyped and promised and what was actually delivered, like, it just, it, it kind of fell flat because... Yeah, point. you thought you were going to get an issue with the first uh, Secret Wars, and that's not what it was at all. No, no, it was it was kind of like almost like, well, we we said we're going to do this thing, now we're obligated to do this thing, so let's do this thing, but let's not uh, let's not put a big um, a, a big effort into it. Although you mentioning Dragon, I remember his girlfriend was murdered in that issue zero. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like very early on in the series, it has a a tone that you weren't getting from Eric when he was doing Doom Patrol at DC or or Spidey at Marvel. Right, and, right. And that's why I think it really, as I think I was 17 myself when I first discovered Image, because I came in late. I didn't, I, I've said that already right before, but I can tell you exactly where I came in. And it was basically, I think, year two. It was issue one of the Savage Dragon main series, not the mini, mm-hmm. and the Max, and I want to say maybe, oh gosh, is it number eight or nine where Cerebus pops into uh, Spawn? I don't remember. Uh, that was issue, mm, let me think. There was the Angela issue, there was the Kincaid issue. I think. Yeah, Angela, it was right around there. I want to say I nine think Angela. I think it was yeah. eight. I think it was eight. Yeah, so that was right when I started reading Spawn, because I was like, oh, Cerebus, I remember him from the, because I never read Cerebus, but I got comics that would have ads for Cerebus in them. So right. I was like, oh, this will be my first chance to read a, a, a Cerebus. And of course, you know, it's a huge meta commentary on the state of uh, creators that work for Marvel and DC. Um, but yeah, th- that's where I came in at. And I really remember Dragon appealed to me because it was mature without being graphically mature. Does that make right. sense? Yeah. Like, like it handled things in a mature manner without being just gross or overly sexy or whatever. Right. Yeah. And I just really appreciated uh, that it was such a different comic than what I had read before. And like I say, I've always had a soft spot for dragon. So what was it with the, the, the spawn issue where he meets uh, Cerebus? Is it like he goes to heaven or something? Well, they're all, I don't remember it because it's been years. But you know I remember that he says something like, oh, he says something like, you can have anything you ever want and a million hockey cards. And I remember <laughs> that line from the issue because McFarland's Canadian. So, you know, hockey cards, I guess, are, are currency in Canada. Well, I don't know. They're currency to me. I'm a big hockey collector, but I just always thought that was funny. And a million hockey cards. Yeah. Well, he got. Why was it? I was talking to you before we decided to do the show, and I, I I had never run into it before, but it was in the recently published um thing Valentino did for the history of image, and I asked you, did, had you heard it? And you said no, but I guess apparently, but he quit. The story is he quit Marvel because he didn't like the way they were handling an issue of Spider-Man, he wanted to put like a knife or something through Juggernaut's eye and they wouldn't let him do it. So he didn't do it. And then he basically rode off into the sunset. But the story on this book that I was reading said he was going to do hockey cards, 
which I guess never came to fruition, is my assumption. Hmm. Maybe he was going to do some art or something. I never heard anything about that, but now I want to know more. Yeah, me too. And like I say, it was just, you know, that little thumbnail I sent you, like, just the little side, leave Spider-Man to do hockey cards and, you know. And, and then, of course, everybody starts rumbling, and, and then he puts together the group that ends up forming Image. But he had basically, you know, until Spawn, had pretty much retired. I didn't know the hockey part, but I knew he was a big hockey fan because when McFarlane toys came out, I want to say those were some of the first toys he did were hockey ones, right? Well, he did the Spawn figures back in 94. That's true. I forgot about those. So that was they, another, I mean, again, this could be a 19-hour show because, <laughs> McFar- I mean, McFarlane, I mean, when they talk about, like, how, like, the other books couldn't come out on time and McFarlane did a book, like, every month, like, pretty much, right. like, he was pretty consistent. But then, I mean, he was doing other things. I mean, he, he wanted Spawn action figures. He went mm-hmm. to Mattel, and um, they wanted to make him, like, four dollars five dollars you know and and he wanted them to look as nice as possible and nobody was going to make a ten dollar action figure so he started his own company right which was originally called todd toys and then mcfarland uh, it was called todd toys and mattel um mattel wanted to do spawn action figures and he didn't he didn't go with mattel so then he started his own company called Todd Toys, and then they said, well, wait a minute, Barbie has a friend named Todd. Oh, for Pete's sake. So you can't be Todd Toys because we have a character named Todd. And, you know, there's Barbie, there's Ken, there's Skipper, and, of course, there's Todd. <laughs> i never heard of Todd before. <laughs> Me but either. Okay, sure. So then they changed the name to McFarlane Toys. And yeah. uh, that... I mean, talk about like McFarlane, like not only turning, helping turn the comic industry on its head, but also doing the same thing with the toy industry. Because you think of like, like Winter of '94, Spawn, uh, Spawn action figures come out. Right. By 1998-99, McFarlane Toys was making X Files action figures, Sleepy Hollow action figures. Kiss. They started making their um. They were still making the spawn figures and they were creeping up in price from 10 bucks to like 15 bucks each. But then they were also starting making the baseball and hockey figures. So, I mean, he turned the toy industry on its head as well. And the thing is, he is still the pre- one of the premier names in toys. Um, my son ordered the Peacemaker yesterday, so he's making toys for DC now. Wow, what a great show. Although it is started show. awesome, but ended less awesome. I'll just say that. <laughs> We'll have to save that for next time. So, thanks for coming in today, Sal. Um, tell everybody one more time what you yes. do and where to reach you on Twitter or social media or wherever else and how to listen to the show. Yeah, so my website is puckjunk.com. I'm on Twitter at puckjunk, also on Instagram at puckjunk. If you like hockey and hockey collectibles, I have a Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash Puck Junk, and then you can also find the uh, Puck Junk Hockey Podcast on iTunes and on um, the other podcast providers, or you could go to puckjunk.com and find uh, my site there. And you know, if you're not like super into hockey, but you still like pop culture stuff, follow me on Twitter at Puck Junk because I do talk about hockey, but I'm also just as likely to like 
randomly say something about my favorite Ninja Turtle, Donatello, or um, my favorite, um, you know, comic book from 1991. I knew we were kindred spirits. Uh, Donatello is the favorite in our house as well, with the exception of uh, Kristen, my wife. She prefers Roth, but Donatello is Jackson and my favorite turtle. So there you go. <laughs> well, and as always, you could reach me at Joe on Twitter, or if you want to send something to the show, our Twitter account is 21st Century Boys, and that's 21-S-T-C-E-N-B-O-Y-S. So, Sal, thanks for coming in on the show, and uh, hopefully we'll have you again. Thank you for allowing me to be a guest on your show. I very much enjoyed this conversation. I hope people enjoyed something that I said. Maybe not everything, but maybe just one little thing maybe they found interesting or, or funny. All right. Thanks again. Good night, everybody. <laughs>